meet you in person and fellowship with you here at this worship service. At this time, I will ask Brother Tony Cloud and Brother Stephen Heffington to come up here. Three weeks ago, we introduced Stephen and Emily Heffington to our congregation with the intent that Stephen be considered to join Tony Cloud and James Harris in shepherding our congregation in the Lord. Our congregation was asked to prayerfully consider him in this work. We promised that if there were no scriptural objections, he would be installed in this work today. Tony and I thank you, our congregation, for your part in this. We thank Stephen and Emily for their part in the process as well. Their There have been no scriptural objections. So as God is our witness, Tony and I install Brother Stephen to work alongside us in the sight of God in the scriptural oversight of our flock in the Lord. We want all to understand that this eldership works in unity with equal standing before God and you. It is our desire to maintain this congregation's biblical and scriptural integrity. Before Tony offers a prayer, our brother Stephen has some comments. Good morning. Just briefly, I want to say thank you. Uh, I'm humbled by this opportunity. Um, I do covet your prayers. I covet your prayers uh, for me personally, that I'll serve the way God would intend, not the way Stephen wants to, but the way God would have me serve, that I'll be humble and gracious. I do covet your prayers for Emily. She is here this morning, but in the nursery. She's not protesting by not being in the auditorium this morning. She does support this, as many of you have talked to her. But this will be a time and emotional um, drain. It is something that takes time and emotional energy to do well. And that will be something that Emily will have to support me in. And finally, I covet your prayers for this eldership. It is always a challenge when the eldership changes in any way. It's not the same eldership as it was before. And our focus will continue to be a scripturally-based, biblically-based church that does what the Lord wants us to do. I want you to know that I love God. I love this church. And I love each of you, and I hope that that comes across in the way that I humbly try to serve in this role. And thank you again for this opportunity. Isn't God good? God is good. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your eternal plan that was revealed, manifested through your church. We're thankful, Lord God, for the multitude of scriptures that, that teach us uh, how we are to serve you. And in one of those ways, this particular office, Lord God, of the eldership, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for it. And we ask for your continual guidance and blessings upon this eldership, upon Stephen, who's at this point now been added to this eldership at the Anchorage congregation. Bless us together to serve you with honor, to bring glory always to your name. Bless us to be honest, full of integrity, and help us, Lord God, in this service to remember that we are your servants and that you come first 
in all things. We pray that you'll bless Stephen and Emily as they join this eldership, that you'll give them, Lord God, the confidence and give them, Lord God, the, uh, the things they desire and need to continue to remain faithful and strong to you. We ask that you'll bless us as the eldership to continue to work well together, to uh, do all things in humility with regard and, and always thinking about this congregation and each member, treating each member with love and compassion and mercy and then being merciful and compassionate toward each other. We know, Lord God, that we as your children will forever make mistakes and though we are so sorry for them, we ask, Lord God, your forgiveness and we ask your protection upon us that you'll keep us from the evil one and that you'll keep the evil one from us. Help us as we guard this congregation from all the evils that abound, that you will give us the wisdom, the knowledge, and the understanding to know and do the right things. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we do pray and thank thee, if it be thy will. Amen. And again, good morning. And would you join me at Luke chapter 12, verse 6. Luke chapter 12 and verse 6. And the Bible reads, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. When Jesus called Judas to be an apostle, he wasn't a traitor. The Bible says he became a traitor, and that is in itself a big difference. And in reading the account of the apostles' ministry, we see when we look at Luke chapter 9 at verses 1 and 2, that Jesus gave them special powers to heal, to do signs, and to do wonders. Judas had these gifts, and with the other apostles, he went and he preached. He returned excited about his newfound powers. He continued to witness and experience the teachings, the miracles, and the ministry of Jesus firsthand. He saw the multiplication of the bread and the fish. He was on the boat when Jesus walked on water. And with all of this, one would think, with all of these advantages, with all of these privileges, with all of these influences in his life, why, why would Judas fall? Why did he become a traitor? Well, this morning... I would like to address this question, but before getting into it, we need to think about something. Judas did not become a traitor overnight. It was a gradual process, and during this process, there were many markers along the way. If we look at a brief review of his life, we can recognize several key elements 
that led to his fall and his portrayal of Christ Jesus. Problem number one, he did not overcome his basic immorality. Judas, like the other apostles, well, he was a witness of John's preaching. He had been with Jesus at his baptism. Judas had heard and responded to the message of John. That message being, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were baptized and they were baptized repenting of their sins. We can say that Judas was baptized, but his repentance and the change of heart that was required was not fully there. When we look at all of the apostles, we know that they all had problems. They all had their various weaknesses. They all had their various sins. Peter, who was a coward. Big talk, but when push came to shove, what did he do? He denied Christ Jesus. Matthew was a swindler. John was very proud and ambitious. The Bible says that Judas was a thief. So I ask you, is it worse being a thief than a coward? Is it worse being a coward than proud and ambitious? Is, is pride less a sin than dishonesty? I tell you not because any of them can get us in trouble. The Bible says that Judas was a thief. But the difference between him and the others is that he never dealt with this particular sin in his life. Even after he became an apostle, like Cain in the Old Testament, this sin festered and it grew until it led him to commit even a greater sin, which was the, the denial of Christ Jesus, which led to his betrayal of Christ Jesus. But I say to you, Judas... He wasn't any worse a sinner than the other apostles. He simply did not deal with his sin like the others did. He allowed it to grow within him unchecked. And I tell you, the most dangerous sin is the one that we ignore, the one that we excuse, or the one that we, in our minds, is keeping secret. And in all of this, it's usually the one that leads us to a great fall. Second problem, Judas didn't really believe. And as a result, he did not deal with his sin. The apostles, as we read in the word of God, they were some hard-hearted people. We look at Mark chapter 16 and verse 14, and we find that, that even after Christ Jesus was resurrected, he had to rebuke them for their disbelief. But I ask you, how much evidence does one need in order to believe? And again, I say, we can't fault Judas for not believing. The other apostles had this issue as well. And that they too were slow to accept some of the things that Christ Jesus said, some of the things that he did, and the conclusions that stemmed from these actions. But in the end, they did believe that Christ Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and they acknowledged that fact. I want you to go to John chapter 6, verse 68. John chapter 6, verse 68. When Jesus, there we find that when Jesus asked Peter, 
if he was going to abandon him as the others were abandoning him because of a difficult teaching, one can almost hear the pain in Peter's voice when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Belief. Belief is deciding that something is true and then acting upon that decision. So faith then, if you want to put it in a simplistic way, you believe that some issue, something, or some proposition is true. And then that moves you to some sort of action. Judas had an opinion of Christ Jesus. His best opinion of Christ Jesus was that he was a respected teacher. But he never really accepted as true that this person was the Messiah, regardless of the miracles. We look in the word of God and we find two occasions that has been recorded where Judas actually addressed Christ Jesus directly. And both of those come from Matthew chapter 26. At chapter 26 and verse 25, when he was identified as a traitor, uh, becoming a traitor, and in chapter 26 and verse 49, when he betrayed him. We look in the text and we find that Judas calls him rabbi, meaning teacher. Judas also recognized later that Jesus was innocent and felt remorse for having betrayed him. So in his mind, in Judas's mind, who was it that he betrayed? Was it Christ Jesus? Or was it an innocent, gifted rabbi? It was enough to follow and learn from him. A good man, a sincere man, a knowledgeable man. Good enough that, that Judas could identify with him. But I'm going to tell you something. One does not give up sin. One does not give up their life and change the way they're living for a gifted teacher. Without, without faith in Christ Jesus, ask God, there is no salvation. There is, there is no significant change. There is no protection for us against Satan. We're simply pawns. If one doesn't believe, that's true that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then what he says makes no sense. What he asks us to do is impossible. And it comes down to this. I am not going to give up my life. I am not going to change my life for some well-meaning teacher. Now, I may give up some time. I may even take, make an effort to listen to what the person has to say. If they got a book, I might even read it a little bit. But I'm not about to change my life. I'm not about to give up my life for a well-meaning teacher. But you know, when it comes to Christ Jesus, there's no middle of the road. Either we are with Christ Jesus or we are against him. And we, if we are against him, if we are told in the word of God, we are anti-Christ. There is no middle ground here. In the end, Judas showed that, rather, what side he was truly on when he went to the Jewish leaders with his plan to betray Christ Jesus. Judas didn't deal with his sin because Judas didn't really believe. It's fair to say that Judas loved the world more, more than he loved God. 
You know, if it was just about a question of doctrine, he could have easily gone to one of the other apostles like Thomas and he could have talked to him. Or he could have said to the Lord, you know, Rabbi, (laughs) I don't buy it. I need more proof. He could have denounced, he could have argued with Christ Jesus. He could have done something. He had motives and, and Judas's motives was to remain with the group because remaining with the group he found that uh, he had more love for the world that he was in than the next world. He harbored the notion that the Messiah, Christ Jesus, would bring in a new political and economic advantages to the Jews, which was a popular view at that particular time. He, along with the other apostles, man, they were, they were going to be at the head of the new world order. Wow, look at what we got here. This, he, 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 he can feed a multitude with, with, with bread and a few fish and have leftovers. He can shut the mouths of the current day leaders. Are you kidding? He can walk on water. You know, but this person is our leader. Hey, we will take over. We are going to be great again. And if I'm one of the 12, if I am one of the inner circle, man, who knows what my standing is going to be? Oh, man, when he finally comes into power, this Messiah, this king, whoo, I can't wait. Matthew chapter 26. I'd rather Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. When things didn't happen this way, it seemed that, and it seemed rather that Jesus would eventually be arrested and killed. What did Judas do? He tried to save himself. He tried to find a place in the system by siding with the priests. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus says this to remind us of some things even today. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold fast to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Eventually, for all of us, eventually who we love more will always win out. Now, some people love booze more than they love their health and their sanity. Some people love their work, their independence, their lovers, their toys, their hobbies, or something else more than they love their spouses or even their families. Some people love life in this world more than life in the church. It took a while. It took a while. But eventually, when push came to shove... Judas showed who he loved more. And the interesting thing is that we do the same. It might take a little while, but eventually who we love really shows. Now, with Judas, Judas provides... Not intentionally, I'm sure. Judah provides us with some important lessons in our own lives as disciples. And we know who disciples are. They are the ones who have been baptized into Christ Jesus and are called Christians and followers of Christ, disciples. He gives us lessons. So as disciples, though, we need to remember something. We need to remember that we are capable of some pretty wicked things if we're not careful. 
I don't think that when Christ Jesus called Judas to be one of the apostles, that Judas was thinking, man, I can't wait. Three years from now, I'm going to make sure that this guy gets sent to the cross. I don't think he was thinking that. I don't think that that was what was on his mind. But that's what he did. Being a disciple of Christ, then, is no guarantee against temptation and certainly no guarantee against failure. If we don't deal with our small sins, our small doubts, that small bad habits that's taking place in our lives, they can come together at the most unpredictable time and make us fall. That's just how it works. That's just how it works. I appreciate brethren to come forward that that call or visit and they come asking prayers in order to deal with that stuff that's going on in their lives. And it doesn't matter what the stuff is. It is stuff that is going on in their lives and they don't want that stuff to take control of them. I see that as a sign of courage. I see it as a, a sign of wisdom. I see it as a sign of faith, not weakness. In 1 John 1, verses 7 and 9, 1 John 1, verses 7 and 9, John tells us the only way to deal with sin is, one, to acknowledge it, two, to ask forgiveness, and three, move on. You know, people are always in a hurry to move on, but... Being a human being, I can relate to this. We are slow when it comes to the acknowledging part. We are slow to say to ourselves, I am this kind of person. We are slow to say to ourselves, I am thinking like this. We are slow to say to ourselves, this is what is motivating me and I don't like it. We're told we need to shine light on our sins. So shining light on our sins, we do so by confessing it to God, to our spouse, to our minister and elder, whoever we feel comfortable with talking to, but by crying out loud, talk to somebody. Shining light on sin by confessing it in some way is what begins the process of neutralizing and healing that particular problem. So long as we keep stuff secret, Satan is the one who will have the upper hand. He is controlling us. But the moment we shine light on that thing, we're in control. That doesn't mean, and make no mistake about this, that doesn't mean that we've overcome sin. No, it is not what it means at all. It doesn't mean that the sin, the temptation, and the pull of it has gone away. It just means that we're in the driver's seat now. We're the one in charge of that thing. We're in the ring and we're fighting. We're not just giving away the match without a fight. So lesson number one then is this right here that we get from Judas. Deal with your stuff. Get with it. That takes us to lesson number two. Lesson number two, you can't have it both ways. As much as I would like to have it, I cannot have it both ways. If Jesus is your friend, then the world is your enemy. 
If you've entered into the kingdom, then you have left the world. If you serve God, then you can't serve sinful flesh. Now, make no mistake, uh, in a, we're going to be going to 1 John 2, verse 16 and 17 in a minute. 1 John 2, verse 16 and 17. Make no mistake, we do live in sinful flesh, but there is a big difference. There's a big difference between living in sinful flesh and serving sinful flesh. If you go into heaven... You can't make your permanent home here on on this earth. John said in 1 John 2 at verse 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away. Also is lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And some people think, I live here, I die here, and when, I, when that is over, I go straight to heaven. The truth of the matter is, we have to leave this place in order to get to heaven after we die. We die in the waters of baptism. And when we do, that is the first step in the process of us leaving this world behind. We might be in it, yeah. But we have left the world and we are on our way to another place. You might say the church is heaven's waiting room. And only those who wait here, according to God's word, are going to get there. So lesson two from Judas, you can't have it both ways. Which brings us to lesson three. Jesus is our only true protection against Satan. It is amazing the promise that he made when he was given a great commission. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Bible teaches that Satan is real and interjects himself into human history through a variety of ways, influencing our lives. Always for the bad, always for evil. And when we think about it, the Bible also tells us that Jesus is our only true protection against sin. We're no match for Satan's schemes to destroy us. The Bible says that Satan wanted to destroy Peter. And what did Christ Jesus say? He said he would personally protect him. If Christ Jesus made that promise to Peter that he will personally protect him, he has made that same promise to us who are disciples of Christ, who are Christians, that he will protect us as well. Satan wants to destroy every one of us if he can, but only faith in Christ Jesus will protect us from him. Why? Because only Jesus can equip us with what we need to withstand the attacks of Satan. Intelligence and willpower will not protect us. The moment we're baptized, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to guide us, to enable us to overcome sin. His precious blood is there to keep us continually pure from the sins, and that is a plural, we do commit. The armor of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of the gospel, that's the equipment that we use to fight spiritual battles with Satan. And Satan cannot pierce any of this armor. He he can't throw a lethal blow. Now he can hit us. He can hit us. 
but it's not going to be lethal. We need to realize that Satan attacks everyone. No one is spared, and only those protected by Christ Jesus will survive. Judas is no exception. Now, one final scene in Judas's life is very revealing. It's in Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter twenty-six. Verses 20 through 25, but I particularly want to look at verse 25. It takes place at the Last Supper. Jesus is speaking to his apostles, and in this scene, he reveals to them who the traitor is. And we find that each of them is concerned. But we get to verse 25, and the Bible reads, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Each apostle asked Jesus, is it me? Why? Because each of them felt that they have fallen short, or they had fallen short as disciples. Even Judas says it or asks it. And it seems here that Jesus is leaving Judas one last chance to repent, one last chance to make things right, one last chance for fellowship, a chance to share the communion. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a chance. I'm calling you out. I know what you're going to do. But Judas chose not to respond. At John chapter 13, at verse 30, the Bible tells us that after he received the morsel of bread, signifying that Jesus really knew his true intentions. Judas leaves immediately. This same scene, in the spirit of the moment, is repeated each Lord's Day. We just finished it. We just finished it. It's repeated each Lord's Day when we gather around the Lord's table to share the communion as disciples. Among our number, there are those who have denied Christ. There are those who have been unfaithful to him. Those who may not be worthy to share in the meal. For some reason or another, we know who we are. Christ Jesus knows who we are. So in future opportunities partake, to partake of the supper, this is what I want to leave us with. Before we partake of the supper, we are to carefully examine our hearts to make sure that we approach that particular moment with sobriety and with proper understanding. If someone needs to acknowledge to the Lord that they have been unfaithful, living in a way which is unworthy of Christ, make peace with him. Make peace with him before you go to the table. I say, please do that. If for some reason you need to come before the church to confess public sin or actions that may have hurt the Lord's body, do that. Do that before you partake of communion. I'm saying to you, think very carefully. If you're if you have not confessed Christ and have not been baptized, don't take the supper. Take care of that first. Acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Obey the gospel before you meet him at the table for remembrance. 
Going back to Judas. Judas' life ended very badly. If there's anything we learn from Judas' life, it's how to avoid betraying the Lord. Maybe not in such a huge way as he did, no. No. But we all do it. I do it. We all do it in one way or another. We betray our faith. We say one thing and we do another. So my encouragement as we prepare to close is just like Jesus at the Last Supper before they partook of the meal. Jesus appealed to Judas one last time to make it right. I appeal to us and myself before we take partake of the meal we have that one last opportunity to make it right. I appeal to you one last time before you take communion. Make things right before the Lord before you join him at the table. So if there are any needs would you please make them known by coming forth as we stand and sing. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching.